of Practically Ranching. I'm Matt Perrier, and we are finally back from a bit of an unplanned break from the pod. No, this isn't a new season. There wasn't a writer's strike. I don't have any other type of Hollywood excuse. I just flat haven't had time to record and edit and post a podcast over the last six weeks or so. We had a big bull sale in November. We had more bull deliveries than ever before. We had some extra water hauling and feeding duties due to the drought that, thankfully, we've gotten a bit of a reprieve from over the last uh, month or so. But the past few weeks have just been slammed. Plus, we threw in fall AI, and I had to give my real job and my family priority, and so the podcast got shoved to the back burner. But we're back in action. And I think you'll agree that this week's episode is going to be worth the wait. Dr. Frank Mitlerner is a professor and air quality specialist at the University of California, Davis. He's also director of the CLEAR Center, which stands for Clarity and Leadership for Environmental Awareness and Research. And you'll hear him give some of his personal path through the years, but Although he immigrated from Germany, I think you'll quickly realize that he epitomizes an American researcher. He asks tough questions, he challenges paradigms, and he tries to best represent the people for whom he works in a land-grant agricultural school at UC Davis, as they are appropriately named, the Aggies. We dive into a bunch of different topics here. Uh, He has lots more content across Podcastlandia, so if you want to hear more info on any of these topics or maybe just a more basic lecture that he has given, there are plenty of places to find that. And I would suggest either Google searching or, or looking online. I have actually put one or two links in the notes section of this podcast, and I would encourage you to listen to that either before or after my conversation here with with Dr. Mettlerner. And I also put some links to his work at the Clear Center that he's published as well. Now, depending on your politics or your age or any other identities and values that you may have, this may be another one of these podcasts that makes you just a little bit uneasy. Admittedly, I kind of had to take a deep breath before I did this interview because I'm one who believes that at least some of the narrative that has surrounded climate change and greenhouse gas emissions has been a bit overblown through the years. But whether you think that we're on the brink of climate Armageddon or you think it's all just a complete facade dreamt up by Al Gore and the mainstream media, I think you can appreciate Dr. Mettlerner's science-based, practical approach to the facts surrounding carbon and the byproducts of its use. Now, English was obviously not Frank's first language, but I think you'll find that he has mastered it through the decades. And even more impressive, he's learned to speak another language, that of the world's curious consumer who seeks to understand just how farmers and ranchers are stewarding the resources entrusted to their care while we're on this earth. So welcome back to Practically Ranching. Merry Christmas, and thank you for joining me for this conversation with Dr. Frank Welcome, Dr. Mettler, to Practically Ranching. We appreciate you being on here. I think I saw that um, maybe your travels recently took you to Dubai. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, I attended the COP28 meeting. So how was uh, how was that and how was Dubai? I have to say uh, it was very different than I expected. Um, the meeting was announced as being centered largely around the impact of food on climate and uh, that the people in developed countries in the world would be asked to drastically change what they eat uh, toward a more plant-based diet. And so I expected that kind of narrative, but it was totally different. Um, The meeting was well-balanced. And um, what was very interesting was that 
I was asked to give two talks and I did this. And the FAO at the same time, on the day after my talks, released, the FAO is the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations in Rome. Right. The FAO released two reports and these two reports were very, very uh, interesting to me because what they said was pretty much exactly what I had said the previous day. So I had uh, told the audience that I think uh, what's really needed in animal agriculture is not further herd size growth or herd size expansions in some part of the world, uh, particularly developed, de developing countries. But what's really needed is that we become better at our efficiencies and productivities, that we make sure that um, herd health is optimized. Nutrition, genetics, reproduction are the main levers, uh, not just here, but throughout the world with respect to shrinking the environmental footprint of livestock. And I was blown away when I saw these FAO reports that completely concurred and that also said, that what the anti-livestock and anti-meat people have been proclaiming, namely that we need to eat much less animal source foods in order to protect the planet from climate change, that that was not reflected by the FAO. The FAO said of all the measures to reduce the carbon footprint of our food, eating less animal source foods will not get us there. It will have the least of all impacts. The most impacts will be working with farmers to reduce emissions. So basically what I would argue that the U.S. cattle industry has been trying to do on its own accord, improving our efficiency of production, improving our reproductive efficiency, and making the most of the resources that we do have for decades, right? Yes, but the U.S. beef and dairy herd uh, or dairy producers have not just been trying, but they have done it. Sure. On the beef side, for example, um, the U.S. has 6% of the global beef herd, but it produces 18%, one-eighth, of the global beef. So this is exactly what we're discussing here, uh, which is you can do so much more with less by... right. And, and that's, I think, what you have said in so many of the talks that I've heard you give and, and interviews that I've read. And that is, we don't need to just sit here and defend what it is we're doing. We need to tell folks what we have been doing and why. And once we tell that story quite often, that's almost enough for a lot of these conversations to turn from cows are the reason for climate change to maybe we can just incrementally get better through all of these different technologies and selection and management practices and things like that. So tell me a little bit about your history. Um, you're the director of the CLEAR Center there at UC Davis. Tell us how that came to be and, and why and what brought you to the point where you'd even be attending something like COP28 in Dubai for the beef industry and dairy industry. Yeah, maybe just one point going back. Sure. I am not a proponent of saying, uh, oh, we're already so good, we don't have to do anything else. Right. Um, but I am a proponent of a let's continue to improve strategy of yeah. acknowledging what our contributions are and continuously making strides to reducing it. Um, I have always felt that way. I have been here at UC Davis uh, as a professor and air quality specialist for the last 21 years, and my entire career has been um, <clears throat> dedicated to reduce the footprint, the env environmental footprint of livestock, studying ways of practically reduce emissions, minimizing the environmental footprint. At first, there was not really much interest, but today the world talks about it. All the anti-livestock people um, have identified the environmental aspects as the Achilles heel of beef and dairy and other livestock species. And so the research that I had been done, uh, I had been doing for a long time, is now not a little niche area of interest, but it's now mainstream. And so obviously over the years I have formed very close relationships to the livestock sector. 
And what I mean by that is met and worked with hundreds, if not thousands of farmers, mainly here in the United States, but also internationally. I've built trust. Uh, they know that when I study something, when I publish something, when my center uh, studies and publishes something, then this is something they can hang their hat on and trust in. And as a result, our work gets implemented in the real world. And that to me is very, very important. Namely, not just to publish things in the peer-reviewed literature that's read by a couple dozen people, scientists, but for our work to make the real world and make a difference in the real world. And that's exactly what's happening. Um, and that's why I founded the CLEAR Center, because I wanted to have an instrument that amplifies what I normally would be doing by myself. Now I have a research core with postdoctoral fellows and PhD students, um, a relatively large research enterprise as one half of the CLEAR Center, and the other half of the CLEAR Center um, does work that traditionally is called extension. Um, it's pretty much communication with the agricultural sector, but also with the public at large as well as with influencers. So we are reaching journalists, we are reaching policymakers, we are reaching farmers, we are reaching high school students, college students, politicians, and so forth. And we are doing it in a, in a, I think, very effective way. And by doing it, we have changed the narrative around livestock, climate, livestock, and the environment. We have gotten it back to the forefront of thinking in farmers. And we have um, counteracted some of the rhetoric that's thrown against our farmers by interested parties. Well, I would echo the, that you are doing exactly that uh, because for so many years, we as producers have, like I'd mentioned there a few minutes ago, kind of taken almost a defensive viewpoint and said, how dare someone ask why it is that we raise cows? How dare someone try to regulate particulate matter? We know there's going to be dust. We choke on it every day. How dare someone tell us how to do our business? And that doesn't work with the FAO. That doesn't work even anymore with neighbors in Wichita, Kansas, uh, much less those that, that really want to take the industry down truly and are using those against us. So, so what you're doing there, I think, is helping us speak the vernacular and use the terminology and, and show what it is that, that uh, we're trying to achieve and, and therefore hopefully are and then incrementally getting better every day. So what got you into this business? You were raised in Germany, correct? Did your postgraduate work or your graduate work at Texas Tech take us through how you got into this air quality space and then into things like the Clear Center? So I thought that I had no agricultural background. Neither my parents nor grandparents' generation were in agriculture. And so I thought I had no such background. But Little did I know that um, when a few years ago my oldest brother and I went on a ancestry research, we found out that seven, eight hundred years of our ancestors were in two areas. The one was animal agriculture. They all had cattle, and the cattle were pushed up the mountains in the summer and down into the valley to live in the homes where, where those people lived. Right. Um, and so that went on for at least seven, if not eight hundred years. And uh, the other area they were involved in was was forestry. Mm. And without knowing our history, my oldest brother became a professor in forestry oh. at, a, at a German university, <laughs> and I'm a professor in animal science. So I guess it runs deep. Um, yes, I did my uh, master's in agricultural engineering at a university in Germany, in Leipzig, and then I did my PhD at Texas Tech University in Lubbock, Texas. <clears throat> I, I went there because that's where the cattle are. That's where... A lot of the, the cattle industry in the United States is located, um, particularly the, the more intensive production. And then um, after doing my PhD, I came to uh, Davis, California in 2002 uh, to start my first ever uh, real job, not just a summer job, but first ever real job. Right. And I've never left since. And so I was always interested in the interrelationship of livestock and its environment. I started out when I was a master's student in Germany 
traveling the world, uh, various countries, and looking at the effect of the environment on, on animals, such as heat stress or cold stress or um, husbandry issues or so. Um, and then later, uh, during my PhD, and, and once I became a professor, I expanded that into looking at the impact that livestock has on air quality, on climate, and so forth. And that uh, became quickly a very hot topic, and it still is. And we are one of the main players in that field. Absolutely. And you're, you were per had perfect timing, I would say, and to have that passion and that interest. You know, you mentioned the word husbandry there, and I've had this conversation. I, I unlike yourself, I grew up on a ranch. I went into an animal science undergraduate uh, program at, at Kansas State University and, and graduated from there, had a series of jobs within the beef industry, and now I've moved back into beef production with my family where I grew up. I have an animal science and industry major. And I don't know the exact time when most of our land-grant schools across America went from being animal husbandry schools to animal science and industry, but it was probably somewhere in the 70s or 80s, I would guess. And in some respects, when we're talking to the consumer, science and industry almost turns them away. And yet husbandry, and doing exactly as you mentioned studying these interrelationships between livestock and their environments, that's mainstream. That's, that resonates with our public that's either making that beef purchase or deciding how they're going to vote on some kind of an issue that affects livestock and, and livestock producers. So I think some respects we need to get back to that, not that we've actually changed anything, but at least the terminology of being husbands, being stewards of these livestock, not just figuring out science and technology. It's probably that, not that much different, but it sounds different to our buying public. Yeah, you know, sometimes it's just nuance, but um, you must have heard within the agricultural sector that people push back when they hear the term sustainability. Mm -hmm. they, they push back in the agricultural sector and they say, well, you know, they're not endorsing. But what's interesting is, to me, sustainability rests on five pillars. Environmental quality, animal welfare, workers, food safety, and financial viability. I repeat that. Environmental quality, animal welfare, uh, workers, attracting and retaining qualified workforce, food safety, and financial viability. So sustainability, uh, in my opinion, rests on these five pillars, but so does stewardship. If you think of stewardship, if you ask a thousand farmers, you know, how, how many of you think that taking the best care of your land, of the water that runs through your land, uh, the air and the soil, taking the best care of the welfare of your animal, taking the best care of the product quality that you produce, taking the best care of the people who work with you and for you and making sure they stay with you and taking the best care of your finances. Who would think that these are not strategically important pillars of your, of your operation? I don't think of a thousand farmers you would get five that would say, no, we, we don't believe in that. So they buy into stewardship. They don't buy into sustainability. But the thing is, people in cities call it one thing. People in the countryside call it something else. If these people in cities buy your products, well, then you better speak the language that they speak because otherwise you won't listen. Yeah, I, I've had that discussion and it's frustrating. I mean, as soon as what I call a red flag word like sustainability or climate change comes up, yeah, we're, we're going to have a certain segment of our producers that absolutely say, I'm not even participating in this because I don't believe it's real. Yeah, you if, know, I mean, I give, I give about 150 talks a year, invited talks, and many of those people you are talking about sit in my audiences. And I have yet to meet, I mean, there are a few, but I have yet to meet people who, after hearing me out and hearing me out openly and really with a, without filters, uh, would come to me and say, you know, uh, I still think you're full of it. Um, they say, well, I didn't quite understand what it was about. 
now that I do understand what it's about, it makes sense and uh, and I'm behind. Yeah, I think that's where a lot of us get is some of the fringe actors in terms of the climate change movement and, and activists and things that, like so many things, are taken too far, have made it where politically or whatever drives folks' core decisions have not allowed a lot of folks to um, to even accept, much less embrace, this whole movement. But let me ask you this. Whether we believe that man has an effect on climate change or has not had an effect on climate change in 2023 going forth, does it matter what we believe in that regard? Or has that been dogma that is accepted enough globally that we have to say what it is that we're doing to manage and be husbands and stewards of our resources as best as we can and, and prove to people what our position is on, on the beef industry. So I meet many producers, and I have to tell you, there are very, very few who tell me, I don't, I don't see any changes out there, okay? I think everything is the same way it was 30, 40 years ago. I think everybody who works in nature, like farmers do, Everybody sees that things are changing. We see all kinds of extremes intensifying. Um, I have, over the last 21 years that I've been here, seen five-year droughts. Five-year droughts where our farmers were cut back to 5% of the normal water, water allocations. Uh, I've seen wildfires, unbelievable-sized wildfires, uh, that take place in ways that are atypical. The fires are way hotter than they used to be. Uh, some of those fires occur in the Sierra Nevada where we have these mon these huge trees, these sequoia trees, that have a bark of you know 10 inches thick. These things burn down all of a sudden. They have never burned down. They are adapted to to existing in in wildfire regions, but now they are burning down. I was just there in one of these incredible uh, sequoia groves, and I saw quite a few of those big trees that have burned down, and it's uh, heartbreaking, to be honest with you. Most farmers I talk to say, yes, I see things are changing, but, uh, and I also think that you know, human activity can have something to do with that, they say, but I'm just not sure my cows do. And here's the thing. First of all, I do believe that human activity has an important impact on our climate, and the way that I think that impact occurs is that we take an enormous amount of carbon out of the ground where it was stored for a very long time as decaying and fossilized plant and animal material that was in the ground for a very long time. And over the last 70 years, we took half of it out with oil, coal, and gas, and we burned that stuff. And now the carbon that was in the ground for so long is in our atmosphere. And every time solar beams hit those carbon molecules, they heat up. I can show that to anybody who is interested in, in my lab because we can simulate it. I know that uh, increasing concentrations of carbon in the atmosphere will lead to increasing warming impacts. And humans do a lot of that. So the question is, how much of that do our animals do? How much of that comes from livestock? The answer to that is um, livestock produces one main greenhouse gas, and that's methane. And while methane indeed is a powerful gas, about close to 30 times more powerful per molecule than carbon dioxide, while that's true, methane also has some very interesting um, nuances to it that people are normally not aware of. While carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases are only produced by certain sources, Methane is naturally produced, let's say by cattle or rice paddies or so, but after about one decade, it's being destroyed by, a, by another molecule that's in the air called a radical. And so methane is not just produced by sources, but there are also sinks for methane. And that means if we manage methane effectively, by either holding it constant, meaning constant herd sizes, for example, produce constant methane, or better, by reducing it further, then we can either not have an impact 
on adding additional warmth. Or if we reduce methane, we can reduce warming. And that's where we are working very hard to help our farmers identify ways through breeding, through feeding, through reproduction and other means to reduce methane because that reduces warming and that makes farmers part of a climate solution, which they should. So let's back up one step and talk about all of, just so our listeners get it, the greenhouse gases that can affect the, the climate. So we talked about methane. You mentioned mm -hmm. carbon dioxide. Yeah. Tell us some of those inner reactions and, and differences and similarities there. So let's just limit ourselves to these two gases, carbon dioxide and methane. Okay. Carbon dioxide is the number one greenhouse gas with respect to total uh, abundance, we call it, how much of that is in the house. It's produced every time we burn oil, coal, and gas. So every time we burn gas using our car, um, we put new and additional carbon into the atmosphere that wasn't there thousands of years ago. And that CO2, once it's in the atmosphere, once it comes out of the exhaust pipe of our car, will stay there in the atmosphere for a thousand years. That's the lifetime of that gas. There are no real sinks destroying that gas, but we are a net source of it. And we are adding additional carbon uh, by burning fossil fuels every year, and the trend goes up, 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 and up. CO2 carbon dioxide is called a stock gas because it accumulates. And what you burn today is in addition to what you burned last year and last decade and all the stuff your parents and grandparents and so on put into the atmosphere. So CO2 is a stock gas. It only accumulates. And every time we burn fossil fuel, it leads to additional warming. Methane is not a stock gas. Methane is, has, first of all, a short lifespan of about 10 to 12 years. It's produced by sources, but it's also destroyed by sinks. And if you have a constant source of methane, let's say a constant cattle herd, then it's almost an equal amount of methane that's destroyed as what is produced. So you need a 0.3% reduction of methane per year. 0.3% reduction of methane per year to not add additional warming to our planet. If your reduction, annual reduction, is 1% or 2% of methane per year, then that means that you are taking out more methane than you replenish with your cattle. And that means that if you reduce more than you produce, then you are net reducing this gas in the atmosphere, and that net reduces the warming uh, of your herd on the planet. So, and that's really attractive because, uh, let's say, the cattle industry, the, the dairy industry, for example, here in California, is now more and more often covering the manure lagoons, trapping the gas mixture, the so-called biogas, that normally would go into the air, trapping it under the tarp, cleaning it up, making it into transportation fuels, and then those transportation fuels, called renewable natural gas, go into heavy-duty trucks and into buses, replacing diesel. As a result, our dairy industry has achieved one-third of its methane reduction goal within the last five years. And the state is watching that and scratching its head and saying, whoa, what we've been doing here, which is using a voluntary incentive-based approach, meaning incentivizing reductions of methane financially works. Using the carrot approach of incentivizing reductions rather than the cane approach using rules, regulations, fines, or taxes, works. And so I'm really happy to report that California for once got it right. <laughs> and I hope that there are um, other areas where they will follow suit and that there are other places in the world that will follow the California example. Because other places in the world have taken that cane, or that stick approach, have they not? Yes. Yes, and in New Zealand, they are... Um, very likely to go the tax route. So if you have rumen, uh, rumen and livestock, then they will uh, impose a tax to those farmers. Uh, the Irish are thinking about getting rid of 200,000 cattle to reduce their carbon footprint. The Dutch recently had a government. Thank God that government just lost uh, and will be replaced. But 
the plan on the table was to put out 25 billion euros, 25 billion euros, and buy out 3,000 farms, some of the most productive farmers in the world, I might add, out of farming. So they want to get rid of a third of their farmers who produce uh, carbon and nitrogen emissions. And uh, if a farmer says, okay, I sell my farm to you, the government, then they have to sign the dotted line, which says, if you sell us your farm, then you sign that you will never be a farmer again, and neither will your kids. Wow. And if you want to see upset farmers, turn on the TV and watch what's happening in the Netherlands. Or watch now what's happening in Germany. You'll see tens of thousands of tractors on the streets of these countries in the months to come because policies are not working um, alongside with farmers but against them. So you've talked a lot and, and we hear the numbers of ruminants across the world and where those ruminants are in developing compared to developed countries. Let's say through the stick or the cane approach in Europe or New Zealand or through the carrot approach that California has begun and maybe the rest of the United States adopts. Let's say we move the needle a percent or two percent or whatever the case may be in terms of methane emissions from our livestock, beef and dairy. What about India and China and all of these places? Because it doesn't matter if we're less than a third of the total population of, of cattle, if we do the right things from a global perspective, we're still going to have the same amount of carbon in the atmosphere. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it relatively speaking. So the challenge is always this. If a relatively smaller emitter says, look, we are so small, we don't really matter. And if then thousands of small emitters say, look, we are small, we don't matter. Then cumulatively, it makes um, a large percentage. So even though you might be a relatively small emitter, uh, you still have to do your share. Okay, that's uh, that's just the prelude here. Um, the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, the world leading body on climate, uh, looked at livestock's impact globally, and they said that eighty percent, eight zero, eighty percent of the impact livestock has on climate globally, eighty percent of that impact arises from developing countries and 20% from developed countries, such as European countries and, you know, like Canada, yes. Um, so 80% from developing countries. Um, this is not a deflection of our emissions or uh, finger pointing elsewhere, but this is just a simple uh, matter of fact that the majority of livestock emissions globally come from developing countries. So while we here in the U.S. and other developed countries can feed feed additives or we can use better breeding or we can use technologies like anaerobic digesters or so, the same is not uh, the case for many developing countries. There, they have lower hanging fruit. The number one is they have to become more efficient. That's the number one. Why? Because they can make advances like we have done here. For example... In the U.S., we used to have 25 million dairy cows. Today, we no longer have 25. We now have 9 million dairy cows. But with this much smaller herd, we are now producing 60% more milk than with the much larger herd before. We have shrunk our carbon footprint by two-thirds with a much smaller herd, and that has a profound impact. Sure. Uh, the same is true for pigs and the same is true for beef and the same is true for poultry, we have seen incredible advances in production that have had an incredible impact on environmental footprint. In developing countries, we have a big issue. I just told you we have 9 million dairy cows in the United States. In India, they have 300 million. Hmm. And a very large chunk of these 300 million they have in India are what I call idle animals. Idle means these animals don't really produce milk anymore. As soon as they fall out of production, the gates of the dairy will open and these cows will be turned out and then they roam around freely in town because nobody will ever eat them for religious reasons. They're called idle animals. 
So if you take two countries, let's say India and Brazil, these two countries together have more cattle than the rest of the world combined. Mm. Imagine what would happen if these two countries alone were to reduce 30, 40% emissions. That would have a profound impact, a profound impact. Um, if we reduce, let's say, 10, 20, 30% emissions here with our relatively small herds, then we will not really move the needle in any major way, but we would still do our share. And we've always been leaders globally, and this is probably an opportunity for us to do the same in terms of providing that leadership. So let's turn the page just a little bit and look a little more introspectively within the beef industry. And this is going to be a little harder on me and my cow-calf grass farmer types of producers. Everybody that I talk to in terms, I shouldn't say everyone, but most of the non-ag folks that we communicate with about how we manage beef cattle, they love the idea of these sprawling ranches with cows out on a thousand hills and green grass and grandma and son and grandson standing there with three generations of cattle ranchers. And they detest the thought of a barren, dusty feed yard with 100 or 200 steers in a pen having everything they eat come from corn and corn-based diets. But which of those two, from a methane standpoint, is emitting the most methane? Uh, I hate to break it to you, but um, <clears throat> the grazing animal emits more, not less. And here's the reason. What drives methane production is the amount of roughage in the diet. The more roughage, the more methane, because the methane-forming microbes in the rumen of these animals do not... They are not capable of breaking down concentrates. And in a feedlot, you feed 80-90% concentrates and 10 or 20% roughage. That's why feedlot cattle produce very little methane. And the manure is, in feedlots, scraped out and then composted. That means somebody turns that stuff. It's not under anaerobic, meaning oxygen-deprived conditions. And that means um, their manure does not produce a lot of methane either. In the beef supply chain, if you look at everything from cow-calf over stocker to feedlots, then of the total footprint, feedlots make up 10%. Stockers make up another 10%, and the cow-calf makes up 80%, 8 zero. And, um, and that is counterintuitive because people see these picturesque images of animals on pasture, and I love it as much as everybody else does. Sure. But from an accounting perspective... Just from an accounting perspective alone, um, the notion that uh, grass-fed animals are better for the environment or better for climate or so, that does not hold true. So we have to be careful what picture we draw and how much of, uh, of that narrative is really supported with data. And so how in a conversation, whether we're using pictures or stories or whatever the case may be, when when I see data about the consuming public and their view of animal agriculture and, and what sustainability means to them, there's usually going to be an environmental component, but quite often at the top of the list is animal welfare. Mm -hmm. And in their mind, animal welfare is not just being kind and doing the right things to animals, but seeing those out on grass. Mm -hmm. So... This whole sustainability discussion gets really, really muddy as we talk to consumers, especially given the fact that one of, in my opinion, one of our competitive advantages within the beef industry is the fact that we can take that low-quality forage, that roughage that the microbes then have to digest or help digest in the, in the rumen and release all this methane in the process. But we can use a ruminant, a cow, a goat, a sheep, whatever the case may be, out on land and acres that can't be farmed. And so there is a certain amount of advantage to using that low quality, using that cow to turn low quality, low yeah, quality a, forage. Yeah. So how do you do that? Well, I'm a great fan of grazing and I'm a huge fan of ruminants. So I want to be very clear. I don't want anybody to think, well, Midlander doesn't like um, cow calf operations or so. I, I just, address the the notion that I hear uh, myself too 
you know, all we need to do is turn animals onto onto pasture, and then we right. have made a huge difference in our carbon footprint. That is not true. So, to me, it's a beautiful thing. You have marginal land, meaning land that is not suitable to grow crops. You have marginal land, and that's two thirds of all agricultural land in the United States. Um, and all that grows there is cellulose, and cellulose is the world's most abundant biomass. It grows on these marginal lands, and cellulose is contained in grasses and other forages that our animals consume. The only ones that can consume that cellulose-rich material and make human edible food from it, which is also very yummy, by the way, <laughs> are ruminant animals. Right. They are the ones. Without cattle, without sheep, to some extent goats maybe, we could not make use of two-thirds of all agricultural land and the biomass contained thereon. And therefore, to me, it, it is a no-brainer that we use that land for that purpose. It's powered by the sun. The process is photosynthesis. We are sequestering carbon. Yes, we, we might argue over how much carbon we sequester, but we sequester some carbon for sure. Um, we keep it open land and free of residential encroachment, hopefully. Um, so all of these, all of these are really important uh, services. I just talked to somebody else today, who talked to me about the use of livestock um, to prevent wildfires. Let's not forget that there's a huge function that our ruminants have in keeping fuel loads down, and therefore reducing uh, wildfire damages. Think about this: in Canada, in one year. These wildfires that we just witnessed put so much carbon yeah. out into the atmosphere that it offset all the carbon savings from all mitigation in Canada over the last decade. Think about what that means. Hmm. So preventing wildfires is not just a minor little thing. It is big. It is very important. Not just for the obvious of uh, you know, uh, protecting human life and animal life and structures, but also protecting our climate. So you'd mentioned things like capturing methane off lagoons and, and dairies or even feeding operations. Are there ways, or what ways are there, and what ways can we look forward to where ruminants that are out on vast expanses of this native range or any kind of, of pasture-type setting, how can we do that because obviously we're not going to be catching the methane, at least I don't think, yes. on a cow per 100 acres and a BLM allotment or something. What's on the horizon where we can actually make a difference with these grass forage-based cow-calf options? So it is actually the most tricky of all mitigation scenarios. Sure. And the animals on pasture that we don't have access to uh, because we see them once in a while, maybe twice a year when we process them for various reasons, but other than that, they do their thing out there. So how do you reduce their emissions? There are a few uh, interesting developments. One of them is that on the dairy side, we have seen that enteric methane, which is the methane that animals belch out, that this enteric methane is heritable. So one generation passes it on to the next. And on the dairy side, they have developed a test that can tell you whether a cow is a high or low methane-producing cow. And then you can test your herd and then only use the low methane-producing animals uh, for breeding. And by doing so, you have a, a permanent of methane from the entire herd. That, I think, is a very important development. Uh, again, it's available on the dairy side already. On the beef side, not so. We need an EPD, an expect, expected progeny difference test for methane. It needs to be developed. We need to have that tool at our disposal. And I'm really asking scientists in this field, uh, please work on that. It is extremely important. Because regardless of where we house cattle, whether we house them in the cow-calf or in the stock or in the feedlot or wherever we, we house those animals, and of course, in most cases, we use all of those different production types for each animal that goes to the market. But um, regardless of how we raise animals, it would make an, a huge, significant impact for the entire supply chain. So breeding is one. 
The second one is an approach uh, where people put a bolus, which is a capsule, into the rumen of those cows, and it slowly releases an anti-methane agent that reduces the methane that's belched out by cattle for up to half a year. And then it dissolves in the rumen, and you have to replace it with a new bolus. So that's another um, technology that might work under grazing conditions. We have to test it, and we're about to. Um, a third one tested by the New Zealanders as we speak is a vaccine for methane. Don't ask me how that works, but they're working on this quite feverishly so. And that, of course, you can imagine you give an animal a shot like you would for a foothill abortion or something else, and um, and the animal would produce much less or, if any, uh, methane in the future. So that would be... We, are, we need technologies that you can apply once and then forget about it, or maybe once a year and forget about it. Um, feed additives of different kinds will be and have been developed for intensively kept animals in feedlots or on commercial dairies or so, but they are not so much of a real thing for animals under your conditions. Last not least, um, there are some research trials going on right now where people take the active ingredients that are normally only applied via feed additives and they put them into salt licks or they put them into drinking water for cattle to find out whether or not that could be a viable application route. But how far that technology is, I don't know. So I, I should know the answer to this, or I should remember from my ruminant nutrition classes, but will menensin have an effect on methane production on a high forage type of diet? The jury is out on this. Uh, I've done a research trial uh, maybe 15 years ago, um, using various levels of, of rumensin uh, on dairy emissions, and I did not see a difference. Okay. Um, the company, Elanco, that sells them say there is a difference. Um, I have not seen it. Some people say there might be a minor one. Some people say there might be a minor one and it goes away after a while, because let's mm -hmm. not forget, okay. those microbes in the rumen are adaptable. Okay. If there's one thing they're really good at, it's adapting to all kinds of conditions. And the only additive, feed additive class that I've seen so far that really has a permanent impact are not so much the rumen modifiers um, that change the microbial composition in the rumen, but more so the methane inhibitors, which disrupt the enzymatic production of methane in the rumen. Rest assured that on the genetics side of things in the beef cow-calf world, there is work being done. And um, we've gotten the opportunity personally to, to work with two different groups who are doing some of that. Dr. Dave Lallman down at Oklahoma State on a feed efficiency trial that he is working into methane emissions and things like that, uh, provides some genetics down to them at OSU. And then we actually have a what we call a green feed machine that is out in one of our pastures um, that is measuring exactly that methane emissions as our cows walk in there. You know how the f machine works, but for those that are listening, there's alfalfa pellets in an automatic um, feeder and they walk in and bite a few of those for a matter of six or eight or 10 minutes. And meanwhile, it measures how much a methane that they're emitting, and then it puts that with an RFID that's in their ear. And so here we have this long list of 100 cows that are in there and how much each of them are, are emitting as they as they respire. So it is exciting stuff and, and some that I think we're going to want to stay tuned for because it, it it is, as you know, it's a, it's a big deal um, from greenhouse gas standpoint. And I think, I hope, that not only in the future can we have some opportunities to turn methane from a liability into an asset, but it's my hope, and that's why we're doing this work with KSU and Dr. Megan Rolfe with the green feed machines. I hope that we can actually find more feed-efficient cows because not only are they not releasing methane, but they're using that energy to make meat and milk. And um, so I hope there's benefits two ways on that. So wrap us up just a little bit here before we go. What, what are the opportunities that we have to move the needle on greenhouse gases and especially methane going forth? 
So the first and most important thing is that people can believe people like my, myself in, um, in so far that climate change is happening. Livestock do have a contribution, to, mainly in the form of methane. Methane can be a problem, and it is if we ignore it. Why? Because methane is nothing other than energy. Think of the heat that you use at home to heat your home uh, or cook your meals. That's methane gas. So methane is a form of energy. About 10% of the energy that we feed to our cattle gets lost as enteric methane. It's gone. Who in their right mind wants to lose 10% of the energy that we feed to them? The majority of the methane produced by manure just goes into the atmosphere. Now, I know that doesn't apply to ranchers as much, but it does apply to those who have more concentrated facilities. Don't just allow that gas to escape. If you can capture it and convert it into a utility, why wouldn't you? You have an additional income stream and you can make a sizable uh, reduction of this gas. So I have said this many times. Methane can be a liability that you can turn into an asset if you learn how to manage it. And that's what I'm encouraging people to do. This is not some form of greenwashing, but this is real. And it can move us um, from being in one corner to the stage of those parts of society that actually have something to contribute in reducing our impact on climate. Well, I appreciate those comments. And as you talk about turning things into an asset, I think you have proven to me that um, you've done exactly that with the work that you have done there at the Clear Center in UC Davis. I mean, uh, there's plenty of times over the last 20 years that you have been able to shine some light, and, and we didn't get a chance to talk about what you've done with GWP 100 as opposed to GWP Star and some of these ways that you have spoken those folks' language and proven to them that your data is not right. And the beef industry, the dairy industry, the livestock industry is not actually contributing the level of greenhouse gases that, uh, that, that you say they are. Uh, same way it sounds like a week or two ago with the FAO and those reports um, echoing what it is that you talked about. But we as livestock producers also need to recognize that while you're out there, and I hate to use the word defending us, but while you're out there helping shed light on the good things, we need to be working toward giving you plenty of more fodder to show that we are making incremental improvements and we are doing a better job and we are capturing that energy and turning it into good protein, not just emitting it into the uh, to the atmosphere to contribute to those greenhouse gases. So um, just can't thank you enough for the work that you've done there and you continue to do and, and for joining us here today. It's, uh, it's an honor to get to visit with you and Keep up the great work. The honor was mine. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. You bet. Thank you.